I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East and North Africa analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analyses. Individual team and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. The two parts of the northern Bahamas, the two islands that were obliterated, those poor people. But how long is it going to take for those places to recover? They may be better off by not rebuilding on those two islands because of the risks going forward. Welcome to Stratfor's podcast. I'm Rebecca Keller. In the heart of hurricane season for North America, as the Bahamas struggle to pick up the pieces from Hurricane Dorian, we have a scientific consensus that as the climate warns, hurricanes will continue to grow stronger and more severe. The effects of the coastline of the United States, these changing weather patterns are well documented, but less so the ongoing costs, and who exactly pays for them. I'm joined today by two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Gilbert Gall, who has just published a book called The Geography of Risk, Epic Storms, Rising Sea Levels, and the Cost of America's Coasts. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me on the show. Gilbert, would you mind just sort of telling our listeners um, what made you approach this topic from this angle? Your book is about how right. um, how hurricanes impact uh, primarily the Jersey Coast, but other other places in the United States as well. Yeah, it's it, it really looks at the entire Atlantic and Gulf Coast, and that was that was by design. So what I could say is I've had a long interest in what's going on at the coasts, and that comes from my love of beach towns and beaches and the ocean. And uh, a history of having gone to the coast, really on summer vacations, pretty much all of my life. I have seen firsthand what's happened at the coast and the changes at the coast. And I'm really talking about everything from development to environmental issues to uh, the epic storms that occasionally slam into places like New Jersey and wreck the coast, and then how we turn around and rebuild in basically the same places, um, committing the same sort of mistakes that we've we've made since the uh, evolution of the modern coast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, one thing I found particularly interesting when reading through your book was was how the subsidization and the insurance scheme really contributes to to that buildup and that rebuild, where where there's less of an economic um, driver and it's more you just keep rebuilding and rebuilding. Um, is that something you see happening in other sectors, or is this really really focused on coastal development? I wrote a nine part series when I was at the Washington Post years ago about agricultural subsidies. And I got to understand um, the agricultural economics and the way subsidies distort the markets in agriculture. So it's not only the coast, mm -hmm. but in some ways, this is a unique story because most people, when they think of the beach, they're like me. They just think of, wow, I, you know, I can't wait to go on vacation. I love being by the ocean. And they don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about the risks posed by what we've done at the coast. Mm -hmm. What I tried, what I tried to do, was um, combine the history of how we de have developed the modern coast, and then look at the rising uh, costs 
of what's happening at the coast. And by that, I simply mean the preponderance of storms and the growth in the ferocity of storms and the extraordinary rise in um, disaster relief and costs in hurricane recovery after these storms. You have two things going on the way I look at it. And I'm, I'm really, I'm not an expert on the subject, but I'm certainly interested in the question of risk and what it is and how we pose it and how we apportion risks at the coast. And really, there are two things that I saw that are going on. On the front end, you have all kinds of federal programs, largely federal programs, that subsidize and encourage development in coastal floodplains, things that you wouldn't necessarily think about. One of them would be obvious. That's the National Flood Insurance Program, and we can talk about that later. But it's also more subtle things, grants for um, everything from water utilities to sewer systems to new roads and bridges, things that um, help to to, uh, put in place a kind of an infrastructure so that um, towns and cities along the coast can can exist. And we don't necessarily think about those subsidies very much. And then you have the subsidies that come after the storm. And that those range from the flood payouts to the disaster payments to uh, all kinds of other uh, forms of subsidies that help beach towns to recover after, um, after these storms like Dorian and Katrina and Irma and um, Ike and uh, Hurricane Sandy here in New Jersey in 2012. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Um, As someone who's lived in California and Colorado for a a large portion of my adult life, I immediately drew the parallel with fire insurance and, and not being able to afford to cover homes, especially in California recently. And so maybe we could use that as a segue to talk about how the national flood insurance sort of buffers that um, for, for coastal areas. And and I will will say it's worth pointing out that the damage from hurricanes, nor'easters, and other forms of coastal storms and flooding is far larger than the costs of wildfires and tornadoes and earthquakes combined. It's extraordinary how of all the natural disasters, almost all of the damage or the majority of the damage, let me put it that way, is the result of hurricanes. Um, not these, not these other events. They're much smaller in terms of their costs, although still significant. So national flood insurance, what a story and what an interesting story. It's, it starts out that way back in the twenties, uh, some private insurers, uh, covered floods at the coast, coastal storms, but, um, not being entirely stupid, they realized pretty quickly that hurricanes are inevitable and that the results of hurricanes are fairly predictable. They can cause extraordinary damage and wipe out your your insurance company pretty quickly. They largely um, abandoned the flood insurance market by, oh, say for the sake of argument, as early as the 30s and 40s. There was just wasn't much. There might have been a little bit of private lines still left, but not much. Then becomes a debate. What do we do in, um, in what was it, 55, I think? Betsy hits New Orleans and um, it, it inundates with 10 feet of storm surge, and there's all kinds of damage. Um, and then there are calls for flood insurance. As early as, as um, the 30s, 40s, and early 50s in the Truman administration, there are attempts at uh, developing flood insurance. Then when Eisenhower um, embraces the concept of a flood insurance program, actually 
the legislation was passed, but never adopted. It keeps going on like that until uh, the 60s. President Johnson calls for a study of flood insurance. There are actually two studies, including one by uh, Gilbert Fowler White, who is a famous geographer, who, along with a number of other experts, get together, study the issue, decide that, yes, there can be government flood insurance, but it has to be under a number of strict conditions or limitations. First, the premiums have to be rated at a level that reflects the actual risk. Otherwise, Fowler wrote, it would result in a financial catastrophe. Secondly, they want it to embrace strong land use requirements so that they would actually discourage any future development in the floodplains. So if we're talking about the coast, you know, we're basically talking along the ocean, on barrier islands, along the bays and sounds and so forth. Thirdly, we need to do a test of national flood insurance. We can't just roll out the program all at once nationally. Let's start with one or two places, try it out, see if it works, see what lessons we need to learn and any tweaks we need to make. So what do you think happened? It, I'm sorry. It's a trick question. I mean, it, did. it obviously didn't work because we're still building on floodplains. We're still building, you know, where we should well, be. What building. happened is that Congress and the administration did the exact opposite of what Fowler wanted. They offered subsidized, heavily subsidized rates that didn't reflect the real risks of building at the coast or along river floodplains. And they rolled the program out all at once. Now, I talked with the with the initial administrator for the program, and his defense of that was they were under a lot of pressure from the administration to get a national flood program out and running. And so they decided that they would uh, go national from, from the get-go. And there was very little in the way of land use, by the way, even, even though they will say that, look, um, here flood insurance was the first form of sort of national regulation of uh, floodplains, it really was a lot less than that. The requirements were very minimal. People were still building in the floodplains and the number of houses that were built, because we're talking about the coast, along the coast were just extraordinary. We're talking about millions and millions of houses that were added along the coast. And a large number of those houses were second homes. There were beach houses. There were investment properties. There were rental properties, which in my mind, at least, changes sort of the calculus of how we think about those properties. The program had trouble signing up people initially. By the 70s, after Hurricane Agnes, they added a requirement that if you are um, taking out a federally backed mortgage, you're going to be required to have flood insurance if you're in a floodplain and you meet certain requirements. The number of people in the program increases dramatically. About a decade, uh, the program is moving along slowly. It's growing a little bit. It's, it's in not too bad a shape, but then something happens. What happens? We begin to see some hurricanes and large hurricanes at the coast. So you have a combination of we've built out the coast. There are $3 trillion worth of property at the coast. We have this thing called flood insurance. And then we have this other thing called hurricanes, which just from probability's sake, come in and um, begin to hit these heavily developed areas and um, all hell breaks loose. The losses to the flood insurance program 
especially in the last two decades, have just soared dramatically. The program, um, as of last year, had lost $40 billion since its inception, debt that was either covered by the U.S. Treasury or was owed to the U.S. Treasury, with very little expectation of being paid back. President Trump comes in last year and he magically writes off $16 billion worth of that debt so that taxpayers you know, are basically stuck for that. Um, as of today, as we're sitting here, um, we're still um, dealing with $24 billion in, uh, dollars in debt for the program. We'll get back to Rebecca Keller and Gilbert Gall in just a moment. In his book, The Geography of Risk, Gall discusses how planning failures have led to an overdeveloped coast and a huge cost to taxpayers. Stratfor helps businesses identify, manage, and monitor risk by uncovering the trends which have the greatest likelihood of disrupting your company's operations and helping to develop risk contingency plans. If you're not already a member, you can find out more at stratfor.com enterprise. Now, back to the studio with Rebecca Keller and Gilbert Gall. How long do you think the National Flood Insurance Program stays um, intact as it is right now, or when when do we get enough climate change impacts that we are we are forced to change how that program works? Well, there there are a number of things going on that uh, I need to mention. So one is that there are calls to reform flood insurance. Now we've had these many times, and they've largely been a joke. Actually, there's been there's been minimal changes. But there are still calls, and uh, one of them is to privatize the program again, to take it back to private insurers. Now, the private insurers have expressed an interest in, uh, in writing flood insurance policies again, but the fear is that because there are plenty of properties that they could insure where the risks of flooding going forward are smaller, and they can pretty much guarantee themselves that they're going to be able to make to make some money. The real question is, okay, well, what happens to all of the other properties, the properties we know that are extraordinary risk, properties that flood over and over and over again under the flood insurance program? Is the government still going to be left with those properties to cover, in which case it remains a losing proposition for them? Is there a way to raise the premiums to a level that the premiums reflect the actual risk, especially in an age of um, sea level rise, more powerful hurricanes where we know the costs are going to expand. Just with sea level rise, studies show that by the middle of the century or the end of the century, the coastal floodplains will expand by half just because of sea level rise. So if you have three and a half feet of additional water, that's going to grow the floodplains by half. So what does that mean? That means that that much more property is going to be exposed to damage and that at least some of those properties are going to be covered by, by the federal flood insurance program. I don't know what the answer is exactly. I mean, to be glib, I guess I could say the best answer is for the federal government to get out of the business of uh, insuring new properties in coastal floodplains. That's a possibility. You could set a date, say January 1, 2020 or 2021, and say after that point, we're no longer going to write insurance for new houses in coastal floodplains. Um, that would certainly send a message. 
you raise rates and that sends a price signal to to homeowners, to the banks, to anyone, any other kind of financial institutions that are involved in building along the coast. The counter argument is, okay, but what about um, people who actually live in these homes year round who are middle class or even poor? There are some along the coasts. They maybe are at uh, sea level or they only have a minimal amount of elevation and they would face dramatic rises in their premiums. What do we do with them? Uh, Some folks at the Wharton School uh, over at University of Pennsylvania have come up with what I think is a pretty decent answer, which is means testing and vouchers. You're not continuing the subsidies, which distort the market. And you're taking care of people who actually need to be taken care of by providing them with a voucher to either buy flood insurance or to pay for some of the costs of their flood insurance. Sort of the last question that I'll end on is here at Stratfor, we look at more the global view. And this is a very it's like sort of a microcosm of a much, much bigger issue. And so the question I had um, after finishing reading your book is, if you have a government without the capabilities to afford the kind of entitlement spending and subsidization that we're seeing in the United States to support this development, what do, do these kind of changes and these kind of um, environments mean for for the most vulnerable populations? We sort of you sort of touched on that with the poorer populations in the U.S., but do you have any thoughts more on the global scale? Well, I'm not an expert on the global scale, but I've I've certainly done some research and have read there. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these economies are built on climate stability, um, and so that um, that clearly could be a problem. You also have simply the safety issue. I think certain countries that are so poor, Bangladesh, are really kind of stuck um, because the issues are, can they retreat somehow to higher ground? But that raises the question, is there even any higher ground to retreat to? Some places, the answer is no. I've been looking at the Bahamas and um, the two parts of the northern Bahamas, the two islands that were obliterated. First of all, those poor people. But then secondly, how long is it going to take for those places to recover? Mm -hmm. Um, And the answer I thought to myself is, you know, it's at least a decade. um, And it's it's possibly even longer. And then I thought to myself, and this sounds cruel, but... It may be they may be better off by not rebuilding on those two islands. That's probably unrealistic on my part, um, but they probably would be better off if they could find some way not not to rebuild there because of the risks going forward. Again, I know that sounds harsh. Uh, people live there; they're used to the places. But sea level rise—if that doesn't get them and bury the islands by the end of this century. Another hurricane's going to come along and smash into those places again. No, that's exactly it. It sounds it sounds crass, but climate migration and 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 that that very real question of do you rebuild is is a very real problem for the next century. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to us today, Gilbert. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Okay, thank you so much. And everyone, thanks for joining me on this episode of the Stratfor Podcast. We'll share details about Gilbert Gall's new book, The Geography of Risk, and further geopolitical analyses of climate change from Stratfor in our show notes. Please check out worldview.stratfor.com to see how Stratfor puts global events into perspective to help you navigate an increasingly complicated world. If you're interested in learning how Stratfor can help your business monitor and avert risk, be sure to visit stratfor.com enterprise. If you have an idea for a podcast conversation, 
please email podcast at stratfor.com. Feel free to leave a review on the podcast page on iTunes or wherever you listen. For more geopolitical intelligence and links to our content, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. I'm Rebecca Keller. Thank you for listening. Thank you.